Scripture for the day is John 20, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, huh, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his sight, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. be seated. Good morning. Good morning. So a few weeks ago, um, after we had all of that on and off again rain um, that kept us all inside and getting pretty feverish from being cooped up together, I decided to go on a hike. And so um, I went up to Hoover and the trail I chose was about three and a half miles long. And throughout the trail, there are a bunch of rocks and water that I had to crawl over or climb up. And um, so as I came to each bout of water, there was a bridge there that would allow me to pass over easily. And I'm thankful for that because the waters were definitely rushing that day after all that rain. But about halfway through, I got uh, to a bridge that was very clearly in need of some repair. It had uh, fallen down at the end, and um, it was just a little bit rickety and enough for me to doubt its ability to hold me up as I walked over it. And 
I started walking around it looking to see if there were any other signs that it may fall as soon as I stepped on it. And after a long time of standing there talking to myself in the middle of the woods like a crazy person, I decided to chance it and move on over it. And I was really glad that I did choose to, to keep going and not turn around because had I turned around, I would have gotten the same amount of miles out of my walk, which was my ultimate goal. But as I crossed over, the second half of my hike was more beautiful than the first. It had a lot of blooming flowers, um, bright and purple, which I'm very obsessed with the color purple, so um, it really caught my eye. And it was showing the fruits of all the rain that we had gotten and that we were all so angry with there for a little while. And it was uh, a sign that spring was here and it was coming to let us out of the house for a little while. And in today's scripture, it's um, one of the most widely known in the Bible. So it's the reappearance of Jesus to his disciples after his resurrection. And the most often discussed part of this particular piece of scripture is doubting Thomas. Um, Poor Thomas, he always seems to be made out to be the bad guy um, because he's doubted his friends and what they said and that they saw Jesus and he's questioning and he's requiring proof that they really did see Jesus. He's not going to believe them. Um, So we don't know whether Thomas would have required that same proof had he been in the room with the other disciples the first time Jesus appeared. Um, But what really stuck out to me in this scripture is not that He didn't believe that Jesus reappeared, but he didn't believe the men that he had just spent the last three years walking the earth with. He had just followed Jesus with these men. He had broken bread with them. He spoke about scripture with them. He came as close to anybody as you could, living and eating and just moving about life with these other men. And we'd think that he would have learned to trust them a little more at this point. When we live with someone, there's this inherent sense of trust that we begin to build as we see how they live their life day by day. Um, And as I started reading through and studying this scripture, I decided I wanted to dive into Thomas a little bit more. What made him who he was? Why did he not trust his friends? And... As I read on and on, I realized a little more that Thomas probably had a real self-esteem problem. And not to say the other disciples didn't have moments of self-doubt, but I think Thomas probably struggled just a little bit more with that than the others did. You see, in the time of Jesus, as um, he was going about gathering disciples, he was not the only rabbi out there looking for students to follow him. Other rabbis were searching for students, and um, their qualifications, though, they were a little bit more um, unique and different than what Jesus's were. They were looking for the most educated, the most qualified, people they thought that would have the most potential is who they sought out in a student. And that is a very different student than the one Jesus was looking for. And Thomas wasn't very educated. Um, He was a lowly fisherman. And he had um, some very different type of backgrounds than the other disciples. He wasn't of noble birth like Nathaniel. He wasn't used to the people's anger like Matthew was as a tax collector. And he didn't have a friend or a peer to accompany him on this journey he was called to like Andrew or Peter. He was an ordinary man of little means, and he was called to follow a rabbi. This was the break of Thomas's lifetime. And so I can imagine that he felt just a little bit different than his peers. And 
even though they weren't exactly the picture of traditionally recruited students either, um, he possibly um, went about questioning everything they did. That was just part of his, part of his personality. And there are lots of um, different theories about Thomas, um, but as I've read about him a little bit more, he was very faithful and courageous, but one thing most everyone agrees on is that he was very pessimistic and skeptical by nature, which, by the way, makes me giggle because the most skeptical of my children is Thomas, too, so it's uh, kind of comical to me. It must be in the name. But I also identify with Thomas in these doubts. I've did the math, and up until today, um, I've spent about 75% of my lifetime in a season of chaos and doubt and upheaval, just like Thomas. I've spent a lot of time doubting things all the way up to God. And I grew up in a church, and some seasons were very steady. We were there every single week, and there were seasons where we weren't there at all. But I did grow up with a biblical foundation and a heart for God, and the one thing I never doubted was that I was really a Christian. I always knew that I was a Christian. But what I did doubt was what were the rules that I had to abide by? Um, what was God telling me to do? What were the actions I needed to take in order to really get these blessings that I heard about? What really were the rules of the game, so to speak? Was I doing the right thing? Was I doing what God told me to do? And let me tell you, when I was younger, it seemed like there were a lot of rules I had to follow. And I want you to notice, I said a heart for God. I didn't say a heart for Jesus. And I wasn't Jewish, but as he should be, God was center stage all the time in church every Sunday. But where we fell short is Jesus played a very supporting role. He was rarely talked about in the church I grew up in. Um, and what I mean by that is, I learned a lot about the Ten Commandments. I learned a lot about God's anger at my sin. I learned a lot about um, needing forgiveness in myself. And I learned a lot less about grace and mercy. I didn't really start getting Jesus' message of grace and love and mercy until I was about 25, which could be that's the time that our brains mature fully. I don't know, but that's about the time that it hit me. After a rough childhood and as I made my way into being a teenager, this foundation followed me. And I fell into a couple of very long abusive relationships, violent, um, emotional. And kind of like Thomas, I wasn't of noble birth. Um, I was intelligent, but I worked really hard for my education. Um, my parents didn't buy me a car. Um, I had my oldest at 19, and um, I dropped out of college. Overall, I struggled as I grew up and I moved into adulthood. And nobody was asking me to be a rabbi anytime soon, so I can identify with this walk of life that he had. And, but one thing I did know is that God had blessings to give me. That's the one thing that stuck with me. There's something there, always around the corner. Something is coming, something better. But I couldn't ever seem to find them. And from my childhood to my relationships to money struggles as a young mother, um, I often doubted myself. What was I doing wrong? Why wasn't I seeing these blessings? Was I not following the rules the right way? Um, I wondered this over and over and over again. And I would open my Bible and I would search and I would search. And I would try to figure out what it was that I wasn't hitting the mark on. But unlike Thomas, I never questioned my peers. 
I never questioned my teachers. I never questioned my pastors. I just followed everything they said blindly. And um, as I grew up, uh, we moved around a lot, and I started going to a new church um, in Harvest outside of Huntsville when we moved there. And I was really hit by the way they talked about the rules. Um, They changed the entire game for me. I started to hear it wasn't about the rules that I had grown up with and what I was doing, but it was about listening to God and hearing him speak to me, about taking the opportunities he was putting in my path and being able to see them for what they were. And by doing that, I was following Jesus' commands. I would hear this message of love and grace, and then I would see these blessings overflow. It was about accepting and giving grace and mercy. And once we could do that, we could see the blessings that were coming our way and trust Jesus and trust God to hold us up in those times of upheaval and chaos. And this is where my doubt started to change a little bit. Um, It wasn't doubting what I was doing wrong, but the rules themselves, where I t- was I taught the right things, were these people telling me the right path to take. You see, um, I had a lot of confusion and fear as I moved into these relationships, and my confusion stemmed from some of the rules I was taught. As I'm in this relationship, it was my job, even though I broke the rules and I mingled with someone who was not a Christian and didn't believe in God, that I was there to bring them over the line of faith. I was here to witness and save them and make sure that they understood who God was. Just spoiler alert, I never hit that mark. And even though I had this fear to leave, I knew that this was my job. This is what I was taught. I am here to save them. And with that, I started to doubt, though, the suffering that I was going through. Would God really want me to suffer like I am suffering now? I'd heard messages of deliverance from suffering uh, as I was growing up. And in those doubts, it brought a fear that I wasn't able to fully see, Um, a fear of my children having the same hardships I had grown up with, of putting them in a place of poverty. I had two children and one on the way. And... I had a job that I'd gotten when I was 20, even though I had dropped out of college. Um, It was really the same break of a lifetime for me as it was for Thomas to get to follow Jesus. And I was having trouble doubting some of the rules because it made me face some hard choices that I had to make. But once I began to hear this new message of grace that was laid out more times in a week than I'd ever heard in my lifetime, I began to realize a few things. Um, The doubt I was feeling really was valid. I wasn't being called to suffer. I wasn't being called to make this person a Christian. And as I stopped and I reflected, I could see all kinds of opportunities and mercies um, that God had put in my path, opportunities I'd missed or I denied because I didn't question things that I should have questioned. I didn't have the doubts where they should have been. And I believe doubt is a great thing in the right places. I am the same as my oldest, naturally a skeptic, and I always want to know why. If you ask my husband or anybody that has to work with me, they will probably look at you and roll their eyes and say, yes, she needs to know it all, and she needs to know why she's doing it. But um, that, that bridge on my hike was just the tip of the iceberg of the things I question. But the way I doubt has changed a lot. But... Um, I do doubt everything nonetheless, and I think a healthy dose of skepticism is healthy for us because it helps us discern the truth in all kinds of ways. 
I tell the kids in confirmation that the goal isn't for them to have a blind faith and just believe what I say or the pastors say or their parents say about the Bible. And I can tell you that was a real challenge last year when I had Lexi going through confirmation. It is something you do not want to have your child and just tell them straight out they can question you because she has taken it the full mile, I promise. But... Um, the goal in this is for them to be able to learn a little bit more about how to identify their faith for themselves and that it's okay for them to ask questions and for them to question us because we're not always right. And it's how we learn and it's how we grow stronger in our faith. Had I not questioned these rules I was taught as I was growing up, my faith would still be in the same place it was when I was 12 years old. And my life may still be in the same place it was when I was 23 years old. But it gives us a renewed perspective when we press through these doubts. Just like if I hadn't pressed through the doubts of that bridge, I would have never seen the beauty on the other side of it. Our doubts push us to answer questions and see things from different sides. We can see the beauty of God's grace and experience it once we reach the other side of that doubt. But doubt's also a double-edged sword. As good as it can be, if we doubt what we can do or what we should do without involving Jesus in our decision, it can cripple us. WWJD is a timeless and classic phrase, and it is applicable still today. I wore one of those bracelets when I was 14 years old, but it took me a much longer time to ask, what would Jesus do in every situation? A common um, example that we see of this today is um, people asking for money. So we see people, especially if you're going up to 280 or somewhere, you see someone on the side of the road, and they're going to be knocking on your window or holding a sign up. And I've heard everything from their scammers to their car is parked in the other lot, um, they don't need it, or they're just going to go buy beer with it. Um, and um, we wonder if they're really in need or not. And I've been in that same place of doubt. Um, I've questioned that as well. But then I read something a while back that really changed my perspective on it. Um, someone was writing about a message their dad had given them on this particular situation, and he had told her, he said, what does it matter what they're going to do with what you give them? Simply giving is all you are called to do. You giving the money speaks to your character. What they choose to do with what they're given speaks to their character. And man, that hit me right in the heart. Um, and now if somebody is knocking on that window, I am giving it. And because I don't know how many more people would have been blessed with food or diapers um, had I just asked what Jesus would have done. And I think in that situation, he most definitely would just give. Um, we have to make a choice with, to do something good with what we're given. But our job is just to give. And as humans, it takes us a while to trust something or somebody um, I am still not jumping out of an airplane. I am not trusting a parachute or an instructor. That will never be the case. Um, but one of the things I wonder, though, is why it takes us so long to trust God and involve Jesus in our decision-making. Um, Thomas may have been doubting his fellow disciples' intentions. We don't know. We have no idea exactly what it was he was doubting. Um, and we don't know if in between the week that the disciples told him Jesus appeared that, and then Jesus appearing to him, if he thought about the teachings that Jesus had given him over the last three years of all the things he had heard. We have no idea. Um, but we do know that Jesus shows up and gives him the proof that he needed. And we're granted that same proof. 
Although sometimes I think we're waiting on Jesus to appear to us and show us and ask us to stick our hands in his wounds before we can believe it, um, we do still have that proof right in front of us because verse 31 tells us, but these are written that you may believe. This is all written down for us. We have a time-tested, truth-filled, and full-of-evidence book right there for us to know what needs to happen. And when we doubt, all we have to do is crack it open and take a peek and, and see what it has to say. And I don't know if we don't doubt enough or we doubt too much. It's probably a little bit of both. Um, but I do know that we don't need to be perfect Christians. And people don't need to see perfect Christians. They need to see that there's a struggle to our faith. A doubt where we grow stronger. Our children, our grandchildren, our peers, even our parents need to see us fall and fail. It's not easy to be a Christian. It's not easy to follow Jesus. And there's no help to anyone for us to pretend otherwise. My sin is no worse than your sin. Their sin is no worse than your sin. Your sin is no worse than anyone's. We're all broken sinners, and to pretend otherwise is just a lie. John Wesley highlights three graces in his teaching. Um, they are prevenient and justifying and sanctifying. And so prevenient grace is like you having an Aunt Becky that you have no idea exists. She's out there, and then she passes away, but you don't know she passes away, and she leaves you a house in her will. Well, you are oblivious. Aunt Becky is not in your mind at all. That is prevenient grace. It's a grace that God gives to everybody, whether or not they know he exists or not. And then, lo and behold, Aunt Becky's lawyer shows up at your doorstep. And he says, hey, did you know that you have an Aunt Becky and she just left you this house? Here's the key. It's yours. And so you take that key and you accept this gift. That's justifying grace. We're accepting the gift of God's grace and accepting and inviting it into our life. And then you go to the house, you open the door, and you walk in, and you realize something. You own a house, what do you have to do with it? You have to take care of it. You have to maintain it. Somebody was listening in confirmation. <laughs> and... Um, so we, you may have to take care of it a lot. You may have to knock down a few walls and rebuild them. Um, but uh, nonetheless, that maintenance is key, and that's sanctifying grace. We're constantly taking care of it. When we accept God's grace, when we accept this house, we have to remember that perfection is not the key when we walk into it. It's the process. Um, we are looking to get as close to God as we can in this, and how we recognize and change our behaviors and our habits, and most importantly, I think, how we fail in this process is really important. If you're working on a house, you try a one-inch screw to hold up a wall, it's not gonna work. So you're not gonna go and try to put all your walls up with one-inch screws. You're gonna scrap that and you're gonna try again. You're gonna find the right one that works. And then after that, you have a friend that's working on their house, you're going to share that failure. You're not going to let them, or at least I hope you're not going to let them have all their walls fall down because they used the wrong screw. You're going to tell them about it. Um, and you're going to share with them the, the proper process that you found works. And once we take that and we can accept that it's okay to fail and trust in Jesus to pull us back up and we look to him to correct our path and put him right in the middle of our decision making, I think some amazing things begin to happen. One, we stop doubting what we can do, and 
we start trusting God to show us our path. We feel a peace. And two, our paths change, and we begin to see a joy in our lives that we may have otherwise missed. Um, Thomas could have laid down, and he could have been shameful that he didn't believe his peers. I think it's clear to us he didn't do that. His message is spread far and wide, even today. He could have held on to the mistakes he made, hid his face. Um, he could have been ashamed that he required this proof, but he didn't. When Thomas saw Jesus and his eyes were opened, he was able to take that for what it was. I don't even think he stuck his hand in the wound. He accepted it. And then he went on to lead a ministry and live a life full of Jesus' message. He gave his testimony, and today we even still commonly see this doubt as a failure. Why do we think Thomas failed? Um, we stick it to poor Thomas every way we can, each and every time doubting Thomas comes up. But really, Thomas is still showing us today how he failed, and we're still learning from it. It's okay to ask the questions. It's okay to be in doubt, but we have to make sure we're asking the right questions. In order for us to make an impact on this community that we live in and that we're called to serve and minister to, we have to be able to open our hearts not only to them but to ourselves. We have to be able to show those around us that there is a doubt and show them our failures. But also we have to be able to show them how those failures made us stronger, how those doubts helped us grow. And we have to start removing our self-righteousness and our pride and not wanting to seem perfect. We have to be willing to be vulnerable to share this message. People don't need us to tell them they need Jesus in their life. Um, they don't need us to tell them the rules or how, what they need to do to change their life or how they need to act. Um, they don't need the rule book. There's a rule book there that they can go and read, and we can encourage them to do that. But they need to see us live it. They need to see it firsthand from us. And by living it and serving them, we help bring somebody one step closer to that justifying grace. We reinforce that message of God's provenient grace and move people one step closer to accepting it. And I think once we do that, we can really be sure that our doubts were okay. So let us pray. Grace, gracious and loving, merciful God, thank you so much for this ministry that you have left us with. Thank you for giving your son, raising him up, and sending us all out into the world to do your calling. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.